Welcome back, everyone, to the iFlow Radio Podcast. This is David here with Josh Heenan. We're going to get started in a minute. But before we get started, I just want to give a shout-out to FlotationLocations.com. They are a resource for where you can find float centers here in the United States and anywhere. So if you're looking for a place to float, check out FlotationLocations.com, and you can find all sorts of resources there. And you can also check out another sponsor of ours, which is the Mental Arts Network, mentalartsnetwork.com, where you can learn about how people are using floating and flotation services as a tool for thought. Um, I'm a member of that association, and if you're interested in using floating as a tool for for understanding thought, you should check out mentalartsnetwork.com. There are a lot of different classes offered there. We're going to get started now. I have my friend Josh here. Josh is the head strength coach at Moore Physical Therapy in Southport, Connecticut, just about 15 minutes away from here at iFloat. And he's also a doctor of natural medicine, right? uh, Natural and integrative medicine. Natural and integrative medicine. And so it's really exciting uh, to have Josh here. Josh, thanks for being on the iFloat radio podcast. Thank you for having me, Dave. So let's get started with, I'd actually like to start with your first float session because you came, it was about two years ago, I think, when you first came to float, and you've been here a fair number of times since then, but talk a little bit about that because I think it was an important piece of of your experiences here. Can you talk a little bit, do you remember? Yes, Um, I do, very distinctly. Um, So my first first float session was about two days before my fiance and I were, uh, girlfriend at the time, were leaving the country um, and going to Europe for two weeks. We had also just signed our first mortgage and got our first home together about three days before that. And she was leaving for med school three weeks after that date. So it was a lot of things coming to, to fruition at once. And it was a very stressful float session in the first half. I was uh, I was anxious. I was uncomfortable. I'm for those of those of you listening. I'm not very uh, anxious or uncomfortable in normal life. I'm usually pretty laid back and and I was very stressed, um, crunching all these numbers, realizing that hundreds of thousands of dollars were going to be spent in a matter of seconds, and uh, I kind of was able to sit back, look at all the numbers, and crunch them in my head, and really see that there was actually a stress level from all this financial uh, weight coming my way. And I did all the numbers when I was in the, uh, the float session. It kind of allowed me to relax and step out of it and say, you know what, we, we really are setting ourselves up for a good uh, future. And it was, it was uh, enlightening. Yeah, that's, that's pretty common to, to happen for people. And, and it can be very shocking when they go in there to float and they see a level of stress that, they kind of knew it was there, but when a person floats, they're experiencing it. And when a person goes in and they experience the intensity of that of that stress, then there's also motivation to resolve it, which you which you did in, in the float session. And that's really a good example, actually, of using floating yeah. in a very productive sense because you went in and it's like, holy crap, I'm really stressed out about yeah. this. And then you were able to slow down enough and say, well, why don't I do something about it? And actually go through everything in my mind just to to reduce the stress. Yeah, so that's Absolutely. really good. That's cl- classic right there. 
really classic example. And, and yeah, you are generally a, a pretty relaxed person, but at the same time, you're a very driven and motivated person. And I think that that, even that story points at it because as I tell people, coming here to float is not about just like chilling out and, and blissing out. It's about slowing down so that we can see what is important and what we have to do because action is as important as inaction. Absolutely. And floating is really a precursor to action. It's like going in there and sorting things out so that when we come out, we're able to move along in a more harmonious way in our life. Mm -hmm. Uh, so talk a little bit about, and we'll get into a little bit more about what you do and what you've been up to personally, but since then, your float experiences have, I think, been different than that first one. Absolutely. Like, and, and so talk a little bit about like what those have been like and why you continue to come back to float. Yeah, there's definitely times where where um, I think my my personal goals are always not on the current goals, but to do a good job with the current things, but always looking for the next step. And I think that is where I pursue success or, or feel that success is, is driven for me. So I think I, I take on often either too much or, or take on um, things that aren't necessarily driven the way I should be um, currently grabbing tasks. So when I feel a little inundated, I'll come over make sure I float. And, and I notice that when I do it more regularly, that I don't have these issues crop up, I'm able to kind of decipher what is more valuable at that time. And, and it really allows me to, to kind of zone in on what's important. And, and there's times where I do have that bliss and I come out and I'm just super relaxed and can, comfortable and could go take a nap. And there's times where I come out and I'm like ready to rock and I'm like, I, I'm going to do work for the next 10 hours. Well, the question that just popped into my head was in terms of your work because the bulk of what you're doing is you're working with other people trying to get them to be in a healthier state yeah. uh, generally the, the the focus is is on on the body but there's the mind body but from from like it, what's more important getting the 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 everything done on the checklist or being in the right state of mind for your clients. Absolutely. Yeah, I need to be. I need to be um, physically and emotionally available for my clients, and that's that's where I think the being in the strength conditioning, medicine, even personal training world is. You need to be a, a source of stability for for your clients, and you often take on their problems. Uh, as much as as much as I think we, I do a good job at delegating, saying you know what, this is something you need to you need to work on yourself, or or find another practitioner to work on, or is this is something we can work on together. But whenever you take that person on, you're taking on all the baggage that comes with it, and and you're trying to handle a lot of different moving parts that are sometimes out of your your reach. Does that ever take? like an emotional toll? Is it taxing in that on that level ever? Uh, rarely, but. I think, I think to my more dedicated clients, the ones that I've been with for five, seven years and starting to reach the pinnacles of their, their um, either athletic or, or personal careers, and if they have a hurdle or hiccup, I, I, take, that, I take that very personally because I feel like you know, we've, we've been through this together and most of my clients are like family, so it's something that I need to help as much as I can. So I think I do a pretty good job at, at not taking on too many of those stresses, but when there are rather large hiccups, I do, I do feel them. The, 
one of the things that I learned in working here, but also it started when I was a teacher, was that sometimes initially I would get too caught up on making sure that all the the tasks were completed. But what I discovered was that what's more important is my state of mind, because it doesn't even matter as much as like what we're if, if we're doing everything that we set out to do, so long as as the way we're relating to one another is is going well. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, a good example of that would be eating healthy. I've worked with different practitioners who teach people about healthy eating, mm-hmm. but this one guy that I've done cleanses with up in Concord, Massachusetts. He made a really good point, which is that if you're eating really healthy food, but you're stressed or you're upset, you're not going to digest your food really well. Whereas if you're in like a better state of mind yeah. and you're pretty relaxed and you have pizza, yep. you're probably actually going to like get more out of it and digest better. And so that's, for me, a really important thing. And I, I float a lot and I do different things to try to be balanced because sometimes... I can look on the side and see all the things that I have to do and all of the things that maybe I didn't get done that I would have liked to have gotten done. But in front of me are my clients. And it's like these lists in that moment don't matter. They do matter in, in the long term because they have to get done. But it's really important that, that we be really honest about not stressing about the things that we can't control in that moment. Absolutely. And I think... I think um as I'm getting older, I, I'm starting to realize that that being perfect is not is not ever going to be attainable. There there is a sense of perfection in my field I would like to have, but if my programming for my athletes or my clients is 95 percent there, if I'm regularly saving in my retirement and savings account, and I have all these little things delegated, and I eat really 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 clean and well Monday through Friday in the weekend, I don't really care. I mean, if I want to go out and have pizza, I have pizza because there's a you know, that extra three or four percent isn't going to bring me 10 times the results. And I think that's really even what I do in here is, is floating kind of lets me figure out what's that 90% because the other 10% is going to fall off and it's, it's not going to matter in the big picture. Talk a little bit about what you mentioned earlier about the sympathetic and, and parasympathetic responses in terms of how that relates to floating and why that even matters. Well, if we're talking um, athletics, I mean, we, we want our athletes to be more parasympathetic dominant. Um, parasympathetic dominant means that they're able to bring their heart rate down, they're able to control their emotions, they're able to, to um, allow their stress to be in a controllable state. If they're, if they're more sympathetic dominant, they're going to be more in a fight-or-flight uh, uh, status. So if you think about like the legends of sport, like a Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan could be in the middle of a game, biggest shot of his life, and his heart rate is probably slightly elevated just because he's been exercising, not because of the state of the game or the situation or the pressure, because he didn't feel that. He, he felt that, that he could control those, he could control his emotions and his stresses um, through his, his nervous system and through practice and through getting himself into that, that uh, state. So when we're dealing with a client that's in pain or an athlete that's struggling in, in tight situations or, or someone that can't lose weight, because they're, they're constantly stressed and their cortisol levels are, are jacked up and floating allows us to get into a state where we can be more parasympathetic dominant and we're able to relax, bring the heart rate down, start controlling our emotions, start controlling 
our body's responses, allow digestion to happen the way it's supposed to happen, allow our, our natural processes to, to take over. Um, and one of the, the biggest things that's coming out in sports research, and it'll take another five or 10 years before it starts to get mainstream, is that <clears throat> if we're able, getting an athlete on the court um, or on the field of play and having them uh, handle sympathetic, stressful flight or flight situations is fine. You can, your, your hormones are going to be all racing because of, of those situations, but the ability to bring those, bring yourself back to a parasympathetic state quicker allows you to recover better, allows your hormones to, to get back to a, a, um, a homeostasis where it's, it's, um, more optimal and allows us to recover for long-term, both emotional and physical growth. So getting our athletes excited and, um, you know, they might be excited because of the game. They might be excited because they're on caffeine. They might be excited because of all sorts of situations. But the quicker we can get them back down to a parasympathetic state, the easier it is for us to be able to challenge them in the weight room, in their recovery techniques, in, in a lot of different aspects of their life. So floating is one thing that I think can really manipulate the nervous system and allow those, those um, hormones to kind of balance themselves out. Yeah, that's something that I observe a lot with people and in, in there's a lot of research going on in relation to fibromyalgia and floating. And the way I perceive it is that when people have chronic pain, it's almost like their it's almost like their nervous system is on fire and like no matter what they do, they cannot cool it down. Mm-hmm. And what I'm observing with people who come with fibromyalgia is that the floating is putting the fire out but it's very gradual it's a gradual lessening of the of the fiery nature of the nervous system and and they're seeing that that's affecting their their pain level because the brain is essentially constantly firing this pain response and when they go in there they're they're slowing down so much that that they are training or retraining their their brain to be in a different absolutely. state. Absolutely. And I think I think the thing the two things that really work for for floating as far as fibromyalgia goes, there's some really good research that shows that um about 80% of the people that that are um categorized as clinically having fibromyalgia, which is a very broad term at this point still. 80% of those people have uh, fit the criteria to be depressed. So if you're, if you're getting, if you're floating because you have some emotional distress and maybe you have fibromyalgia, but you also have that emotional distress that's, uh, that's affecting um, maybe a depression state or, or how your body's perceiving things. And then you're also have, you're, you're in that sympathetic dominant state where you're, you're also like fight or flight constantly firing up that nervous system and you having that sense of pain and discomfort if you can attack both of those at the same time that's why i think floating is is unbelievable for those things because you're you're able to uh, address the feelings address the emotions uh figure out the root cause instead of just uh figuring out the symptoms and then also affecting the nervous system and bringing it down and, and allowing it to calm down a little bit and be more parasympathetic yeah it, it's great that you say that because from where I stand in terms of floating, it's it's slightly different than where some places stand with it, but it's it's very important to be to be addressing what's going on in people's minds 
because it's affecting not only their mind but but their body and what i observe with people is that they go into float and if somebody has fibromyalgia or they have any, have any kind of chronic pain that myself or lisa or anybody else who's working here can chat with people about what even pops into their mind because oftentimes what's happening and what i experience and what other people experience is what's being shown people are the places where they're actually in conflict with themselves and that's outside of their awareness and so when they float they're going in there and they're seeing things that are stressing them out and they have the opportunity to see those things sometimes they don't even realize that they're there i have people who come in here and they talk about how they had this like intense memory of something that happened like 20 years ago and it really kind of throws them and and part of my job is to say well what is it that's unresolved there and all of a sudden people will slow down and, and, and they'll look at it and they'll say, oh, okay, I can see that this piece or that piece is unresolved. And, and that's, it's an important thing because the brain for me, from a metaphorical standpoint, is like, like a multi-layered cake. There's so many layers and, and what that person did in that particular instance is like all of a sudden that layer was revealed and that, that, that very s subtle layer of tension has been there for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it takes up just a little bit of energy and creates just enough frustration. What can happen is it builds over time and can create chronic pain, all these tensions. Because if a person is, is physically tense, which is different from like Michael Jordan, if he's, if he's really calm, then his whole body is completely loose and he can do all sorts of amazing things. But if we're tense, then our muscles tense mm -hmm. and it makes it really easy for us to injure ourselves and do all sorts of things, even if we're sleeping. Absolutely. If we're sleeping and we're really tense, then people could wake up with a stiff neck or who knows what else. Absolutely. But there was a woman who came in yesterday who was saying just that because we were talking about how one of their the, her family members was starting to have these physical symptoms and, and we both agreed that that person should be floating because it's a stress-induced physical response. And she even said she came in, she had a knot in her stomach when she came into float. When she was leaving, it was gone. Yep. Because whatever happened in there, she was able to calm it down. And, and even myself, I was talking to people last week because last week was Thanksgiving. It was my first Thanksgiving since my father passed away. And about two days before, my head was really tense. It's like, it's like somebody had screwed the screws in my head too tight and it was there was just this tension in my head and when I started to slow down and really look at it, like what the hell is going on I realized that it was the morning it was just this this outside of my awareness morning that was taking place but there was nothing I could do about it it's like my I was just too tense about it yeah and I knew exactly what to do that I should come in and float it was my day off I float was closed came in, I floated, and in the float, I could sense it's like physically my, my actual skull started to relax because the float was taking me. I often use the brain waves to describe what happens. It's slowing the brain waves down to a state where the emotion was completely just dissolved or attenuated, and I could resolve whatever needed to be resolved, and then that you know, has a bunch of different benefits but uh... and that's and it just reminds me of an athlete I had come in two weeks ago uh, he's been training with me for a while and all of a sudden had this like very strange back pain pop up and we've been checking him out checking him out and it just doesn't make sense so we started working on some stuff and he's getting a little better here and there and it was only over the course of two or three days and it wasn't bad it was just it was just nagging and we couldn't couldn't pinpoint it. It was very, very uh, uncomfortable for me because normally we can at least pinpoint what's going on. And then we say, this is how we're going to correct it. Well, 
the kid is an incredible student, a very good athlete, going to an Ivy League school, and and I saw him walk in the other day, and his shoulders were all tense, and I was like, what is going on? So I, instead of giving him anything, I didn't even touch him anymore. I didn't even work on his back, didn't even work on his hips or anything. Had him on the ground, had his close close his eyes. Ten minutes, we set a timer and just work on breathing. And he was he was basically hyperventilating when he was breathing. He was in a very um, sympathetic dominant state, like we were talking about, and and you probably were as well. You were very you were very fight or flight. Something was going on, even though you didn't know what it was, and you had that stress. And after the ten minutes, he got up, touched his toes, he extended through his back, and anything, no pain. I didn't even touch him. It, I mean, he was you know, he just was in a sense of state, I mean, a sensitive state and we needed to get him out of it. And same thing with you and you use floating and we use breathing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great that you have that awareness because a lot of times people are approaching things from a strictly physical standpoint or a strictly mental standpoint. And the reality is, is that the mind and the body are essentially one thing. I mean, the, the nervous system goes to the tips of the fingers and the toes. Mm-hmm. And you, we have to step back and be like, okay, what, is, what does this person need? And generally, yeah, it's just slowing down. Absolutely. I remember actually when I was in my early 20s and I, I started to meditate and I got into all of this because of just problems I was having with like chronic stress. And I started to meditate and I could only do it for like five minutes that's all I could do I couldn't handle anymore I was that I was that stressed out and a lot of people are so the there was a guy who told me this summer that the Patriots uh, installed a flotation device in their at their training facility there have been football teams that have had float tanks in their facilities as well and I'm not sure if, if I've heard that maybe Tom Brady floats now but um, there's a lot of baseball organizations that are starting to move towards it too yeah so hopefully hopefully more and more people will be doing that but from from your standpoint what is it that drew you from being a strength trainer and, and focused on that to wanting to integrate a more holistic, natural and integrative medicine into it. I mean, what, what, why and, and what are you going to do with it? Um, more manual therapy. I wanted to be able to you know, legally get my hands on people. I think that that's, there's, a, there's definitely a skill set there that, that um, can exploit a lot of limitations with people and, and fix people very quickly. Um, but the other thing is, is, is the, for instance, baseball, the past 20 years, we've been fighting a steroid epidemic and we're still fighting it and people don't talk about it. Same thing with the NFL, but growth hormones being overused. Um, people are, people are using corticosteroids like crazy. There, there's no, there's no penalty for you to take, um, a lethal dose of anti-inflammatories and get out onto the field on Sunday afternoon. But, but you get penalized because you want to be bigger and stronger and faster than the next guy that's hitting you. So they're, they're penalizing you for, for trying to add more muscle mass and be stronger and more powerful. And there's no penalty to taking things to help make you feel better. So it's, it's this balance in there. And if you look at both of them, and I'm not saying one's right or wrong. I'm just saying that if you look at both of them, um, they're both steroids. They're both going to affect the body, the nervous system. Uh, holistically, how we're going to be able to handle um, stress, and and both have potential deadly consequences. Um, and for me, everybody's fighting for a competitive edge, whether it's 
um, getting laser surgery for your eyes or taking steroids because you want to be bigger, faster, stronger. So for me, anything that is, has basically no harmful side effects and can elicit great responses, it's a no-brainer. It's something I need to explore for myself and for my athletes. That's why we're, I'm looking at acupuncture and dry needling where we can where we can manipulate the nervous system through through a, a hair size filament um, uh, and, and put it into the skin without any detrimental effects. Floating, meditation, exercise, obviously, manual therapy, um, nutritional interventions. I mean, they're all they're all there. It's it's now people. There's there's very little money to spend to get into into those natural remedies because someone can't process them and produce them and sell them and make a lot of money. So that's why drugs are drugs are high on the high end and and the natural remedies are not. And I think that it's something that needs to be explored because in the future when they do lock down testing for all this stuff and then they start making more uh, more harsh penalties for some of the recovery aids that some of these athletes are using and they're going to have to look for something else and we're going to be way ahead of the, the curve. What, what got you into this approach? Because not everybody, again, is holistically oriented. I mean, what, what was it that do you think was the turning point for you to, to turn your direction in that way in terms of your life path? Um, chiropractic, actually, probably. I had, um, I had the Patriots chiropractor is a family friend of mine, and he's been the Patriots chiropractor for like 30 years. And uh, I got pretty good, pretty good injury my freshman year of high school playing football. And I was in dire pain for about two weeks. And in 30 seconds, he took me out of pain. And I've never had that pain since, knock on wood. Um, so I think looking at looking at things and realizing that everything has a place. You just have to know when is the right time to use that tool in your toolbox and, and then start to really um, dig in to stuff and figure out what where the application has it. My, my fiance, as you know, is in med school and we banter and argue and bicker on, on things because she'll show me the research on, on a drug and I'll show her that you can get the same effect from an over-the-counter supplement or by meditating. And she's like, well, it's, it's obvious you should use the thing that doesn't have nasty side side effects so it's just uh it's kind of something i think i've just dug into and unless someone can prove me wrong and i'm always willing to to get proved wrong i'm always trying to get better so if someone can say no there's a better way then i want to at least explore it as long as it's ethical and legal i'm I'm all for it so what and what do you think is the biggest i mean for you personally the, the the challenge that you face in your life uh these days in terms of doing what you do? Um, I mean, for me, I can say that one of the challenges is educating people. Educating people about why floating matters and, and building building that, that awareness so that people start to actually suggest to one another that you should go float. That if somebody's stressed or somebody's having a bad day, they should say, you know, you should go float. Or when was the last time you floated? To the point where it becomes this practical tool that people are constantly recognizing that it has a very huge impact. But there's there's ways to go to, to get to that point. Absolutely. Uh, right. what, 
and so I'm constantly thinking of ways to do that. And, I mean, this podcast is, is an example of that. But but for you, like, what do you see as something that's a, a challenge for you that you have to that, overcome? That's a, that's a very interesting question. I think the biggest challenge thus far is that the human body has very lim- little limitations on it. We, in exploiting them at the with the right person at the right time using the right tool uh, is, is a skill that I'm trying to refine. And I think when you hit a home run, it's actually backfired on me. And, and I'll give you the, the best example I can think of. Uh, and it happens somewhat regularly and verbalizing it is very difficult at times. We had an athlete come in. He's been training with me for over a year. And he's a pitcher, huge kid, almost seven feet tall, big, strong, uh, very good athlete, and he was back at college for his uh, junior year last year and was doing an exercise with his, his uh, school and basically sat down on a box wrong and and hurt his back. And he was in miserable pain, couldn't touch his toes, basically said he was almost in tears trying to tie his shoe every day for about three months. Athletic trainer said uh, he can play, but, but he's going to be in pain. Doctor said same thing. Another doctor shut him down, says you can't play. Chiropractor shut him down, said you can't play. So they went reverted back to the first opinion where the athletic trainer said you could play, but it's going to be in pain. MRI said he had uh, um, a lumbar herniation uh, and a SI joint uh, herniation. All these things. Kid's been in miserable pain. He said 7 out of 10 every single day. Uh, came in. I looked at him. He was moving fine and something just wasn't right. And we did a little test without even touching him and he had some core instabilities. Basically, we found that the nervous system was was firing, saying he had back pain. Um, When in reality, his his stomach just wasn't firing up and stabilizing his pelvis. Mm. And I had him do a couple little rolls on the ground like a a little toddler would do. And in 30 seconds, he got up, touched his toes, no pain, whatever. Um, I, I was hoping the story would end there. He went and did his workout, felt great the next day. Uh, sent me an email and apologized for wasting wasting my time, which I, it wasn't a waste of time. But uh, mom and dad thought what we were doing was witchcraft because we fixed him and all the MRIs said that he had herniations and all this stuff. And even though he was pain free, they didn't want him coming back. And and I think the diagnostic imaging is one of the most amazing tools we have to date. It is such a valuable skill skilled skilled tool to allow. Um, doctors good or bad to diagnose a problem and but the issue is if you walk down the street and they've done studies where they take 20,000 people off the street and MRI every single person that doesn't have back pain and 80% of those people will have a herniation at one level 70% of those people will have a herniation at two levels so these people have diagnostic crap backs and, and but they're not in pain so there's a difference between hitting a threshold where you're in pain and body having the capability to move well and compared to someone that's in terrible pain. One of my, my colleagues um, is really getting into the psychological research of diagnostic imaging, which is an interesting field because if you get an MRI and it says that you have um, a herniated disc, your outcomes compared to someone else that has the exact same symptoms does not get an MRI, your outcomes are drastically worse than the person that doesn't get imaging because there's no preconceived notion that you have something wrong with your back. 
And and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have MRIs. I'm a big proponent of sending people out and getting them MRIs to figure out what the hell is going on. But just because you have a bad MRI or a bad X-ray or or something or bad CAT scan doesn't mean that you should be living in pain. And people have a, a conception that oh, you're going to be an elite athlete or you're going to be a, a weekend warrior. You should be in pain. No, you shouldn't be in pain. Pain is a stress on the body. It's a threat. And there's something wrong. Pain is saying, "Hey, stupid, stop it!" And we need to figure out what the what the stop it is. The way the piece that's that's that people often don't pay attention to when it comes to machines is that the machine is very focused, but but our mind is a kind of machine, but it's way more powerful than any machine we've ever created. Because when you're looking at somebody, you're not just looking at the MRI. You're not just looking at what's going on in the spine, you're actually stepping back and you're using so many levels of awareness and, and intuition, which is another piece of, of paying attention. And, and, and it's something that's not even visual. It's something that kind of guides people to, to where that is. There's a massage therapist that comes here, or a lot of massage therapists that come here, but he was talking about how in his training, they were taught to be intuitive about where the pain is in people, that they don't even sometimes they can just kind of start to sense like, I think this person's in pain. And, and maybe on a scientific level, somebody could break it down to these like subtle perceptions and the tensions and the muscles that, that we're not even aware of. But but there's an ability that, that you have that, or that you're using that some people aren't using because of the way that their training is. And it's not bad necessarily. No, it's just different. It's just different. And instead of the husband and wife saying, oh, they fixed him there must be something wrong it's way more powerful to look at wellness and, and medicine and pain management as a matrix instead of a this versus that mm-hmm. it's really not a this versus that it's it's this person does this this person does that there are all these different pieces and we have to use all the different pieces to bring it together because otherwise people are going to continue to be in pain and and, and in the other piece is that to some extent, and I see this happening too, and this, and I observe it, and I've observed it in myself, is that people also get almost addicted to pain, not in the sense that like it's like a drug that makes them feels good, as much as it becomes so normal that the absence of it is very scary to people. Absolutely, both emotional pain, physical pain, all sorts of pain. Yep, and it's almost like, well, what do I do? Or it's like, I have all this energy all of a sudden, I'm actually healthy. Like, what the hell do I do with that? Yeah. It's like, well, you could actually yeah. go out and be constructive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, that really, people bump up to these places where, you know, even even from like a, uh, say like a, a caregiving standpoint, uh, if, if a, a child is sick or something and all of this has been sick for a while or all of a sudden the parent suddenly isn't having to, or the caregiver isn't having to direct all that energy to it, then it's like, what do I do? And that's part of the, the trick that people have to navigate is transition. It's transitioning from from being not well to being well, and then and then dot, dot, dot. Like you, you can then like enhance your life and enhance other people's lives. And there tends to be this almost compulsion for being not well. Absolutely. Agreed. So then the question is, what do we do about it? <laughs> I, I, think, I think understanding what healthy is uh, and what normal is in 
in relative terms is such a difficult thing for a lot of people to define and being pain free is is um something that most people think is unattainable once they re- reach a certain age um you are as we as we age we, yeah we're going to have to deal with some aches and pains but it, it shouldn't be a death sentence and it shouldn't affect your life so much that you can't move and that wraps up our podcast here today thank you everyone for listening and for Josh for being on the podcast and i encourage all the listeners to go to the ifloat radio podcast review section on iTunes write a review let people know what you think about it that helps spread the word about the podcast and about floating and it helps people get different perspectives on the way that floating affects people stay tuned also to the next episode of iFloat Radio podcast thanks everyone have a great day Thank you.